Well, hello and welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast, the only podcast guaranteed to leave you with an oily taste on your tongue. I am Scott Morris, and <laughs> joined today by Drew Tavendale. Hello there. Also, uh... <laughs> and uh, today, if you're, if you're feeling generous, you could call today's episode a mashup, or more accurately, the remnants of a couple of different music-related ideas that never quite gelled into a full episode. It was resurfaced recently in the morass of my mind by the sad passing of rap man DMX, rendering him unable to deliver to you. Alternate delivery services must now be sought. He was also the poster child of an idea for covering films where the soundtrack is significantly better than the film it's attached to, but seeing as that is a list perhaps entirely limited to Cradle to the Grave, perhaps that's best list to a retrospective. But on the upside, Scott, Cradle to the Grave does have the amazing What's It All For by Bizarre Royale, (laughs) which is fantastic. Yes, and a question I've been asking myself numerous times uh, spotting the films we're going to be covering. Yes, uh, but but, uh, this also brings to mind the crossover between musicians and actors, uh, going back arguably to the dawn of the talkies through the Rat Pack, the Beatles and Elvis up to modern times, leveraging their celebrity in one field for success in another. But that's a bit vague though. Uh, But it does lead to the rat hole of musicians' vanity projects, also recently brought to mind by the opprobrium levelled at Sia's Golden Raspberry winning film Music. There's a little of the spirit of that in this selection of films, and the other primary thrust in here is where the artist's life and career reflect in the film that they're in. Uh, So, a shorter but no less coherent introduction might simply have been to say that here's a bunch of music-related films, but, gentle listener, I have no respect for your time. So... (laughs) We shall start today's outing with a look at The Hard Day's Night with The Beatles and Drew. The Beatles and me? Yes. Starring films before I'm born, that's got a man. Remarkably talented. The well-known sixth Beatle. Envisioned by the studio, United Artists, simply as a quick and cheap cash-in, its budget was only £200,000. On the latest craze, in this case the craze being Beatlemania, which of course was far more than a craze it turns out, Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night itself had loftier ambitions. From a script by Alan Owen, who had an ear for Liverpudlian dialect and who had also spent time with the Beatles, the film tries to convey something of the Fab Force manic life as they head to London for TV performance, being shuttled from hotel to rehearsal to party to press conference with exasperated manager Norm, Norman Vossington, treating them like schoolboys in an outing and gradually losing his composure. Also along for the ride is Wilfred Bramble's John McCartney, Paul's incorrigible and mischievous, fictional in this case, grandfather, who delights in stirring up trouble while trying to get the boys to sign photographs so he can copy the autographs and sell them in bulk terms some money. <laughs> old John is also referred to constantly as a clean old man. <laughs> He's very clean, isn't he? <laughs> a, a running joke that must have been very popular in the UK, but no doubt baffled US audiences. Talking of US audiences, a special slow clap for the United Artists executive who requested that the US release have the Beatles, the Beatles, dubbed with mid-Atlantic accents. (laughs) What a clown. (laughs) And very unworthy indeed of Paul McCartney's withering response. Look, if we can have a fracking cowboy talking Texan, they can understand us talking Liverpool. (laughs) Dubbing the Beatles. Crying out loud. Beneath all of this, though, runs a strong but impish undertone of social commentary, pricking the balloons of pomposity and social propriety with critiques of the vapidity and cynicism of fashion and planned trends and an irreverence towards show business, with the Beatles themselves not above being skewered. If there's a downside, it's simply the ear of the Beatles' career from which this comes. 
I enjoy the music, but their earlier poppy ballads are my least favourite songs, much preferring as I do the music from the Help album onwards. Although, talking of the Beatles' career, can we all just take a moment here, please, to marvel once again at the very fact that we can talk about eras of the Beatles' career, (laughs) when they only existed for a decade and were only professionally releasing music for eight years. (laughs) Uh, They really were something special. However, when you get right down to it, A Hard Day's Night is... Well, look, A Hard Day's Night is basically 90 minutes of the Beatles fanning about, interspersed with some of their music. That is really not as reductive as it may sound, and it's also certainly not a slight. I like the Beatles. I like watching the Beatles fanny about. (laughs) The Beatles fanny about is, it turns out, fun. I like fun, because I'm not a monster. (laughs) It is also very funny. I like funny. I recommend watching A Hard Day's Night. And if this is your preferred era, then you'll probably like this even more than I did. And I liked it a lot. Yeah, I assumed I'd seen A Hard Day's Night, but it became rapidly apparent when I watched it that I clearly hadn't. I must have just seen the clips, because all I could remember was you know, Beatles being chased by people, which is a very, very small element of the film. I mm-hmm. certainly wasn't really expecting it to be quite this funny, but it is really, really well written. Yeah, it's <laughs> genuinely very funny, and it, it feels, as I said, Alan Owen had worked with the Beatles and he'd written dialogue that felt like it could come from their mouths. It, it, it doesn't mm. feel out of place, doesn't feel forced. Yeah, and it's the same sort of kind of a very British sense of humour that was um, would have been kind of influencing the the Monty Pythons of the time mm. uh, just sort of before they were getting to it because they would they, they wouldn't a bit pre Python but they would still be active in in their various comedy careers and it's got that same kind of sense of irreverence and slight surreality going through to it. Uh, and say great running jokes about being a clean old man, not the dirty old man that he would be in other uh, <laughs> things. Uh, yeah, it's it is just really quite funny, and I was not expecting that really uh, to be <laughs> to quite so hard on that one i mean sure it's as you say basically a bunch of skits linked together with a few musical performances but they're good skirt skits and they're good <laughs> yes. musical performances from a, a band who controversial opinion were quite good so <laughs> um steady on steady on we'll get letters <laughs> yeah. um yeah it wins all around with this one i wasn't quite expecting it but yeah heartily enjoyable and uh essential film viewing then no probably not it's not going to change your life but it will make it a much happier place for 90 minutes and isn't that what you need sometimes it certainly <laughs> was for me so yes i yeah heartily enjoyed it yeah uh, i had also not seen it but again i, I kind of had impressions for like you because you've seen clips of like the, the Beatles being chased by the fans and stuff. and Yeah. Although it's kind of recorded in my memories being a bit more Benny Hill-esque. Yes. <laughs> I, I can almost imagine the Beatles running away from all these screaming girls with yakety sax playing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm really glad to watch this now uh, because, it, yeah, it's bloody funny. Yeah. And really, there, there are like these little barbs hidden in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're, they're not, they're, they directed themselves as well, they really like, and, and mm-hmm. poor Ringo's kind of the butt of the joke, but he must have been in it too. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Ringo, one of life's drummers. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's so fun. And there's cynicism of sorts, but not really kind of like a weary cynicism or anything. Yeah. And it's it's fun it's, to see them kind of at that stage in their career and just already just been overwhelmed by fans. Yeah. But like this, maybe this is a, a way to kind of fight against that in some regard. It was like, it's just really funny. Yeah. Which I was not prepared for. <laughs> he was a clean old man, though, wasn't he? Oh, he's a very clean man. <laughs> he's really clean, isn't he? 
Right, so move on to, well, basically this was your starting film, Scott. This was where your idea of this episode came from. The Wall. To the degree, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, I, I'm not completely sure I was aware of the existence of this film, a companion piece of sorts through the 1979 album, of course, uh, until a couple of weeks back when the internet's least correct critic, Doug Nostalgia Critic Walker, released an elaborate parody slash review that was roundly harangued for a complete misreading of the concepts and themes of the film. I was, I suppose, therefore, kind of expecting The Wall to be a difficult and challenging work, full of obscure symbolism and oblique messaging, whereas in retrospect, what I should have lent on was what I knew to be true and proven many times over, namely that the nostalgia critic is an idiot. Anyway, curiosity must be sated, cats be damned, so I sat me down to watch The Wall and it is certainly a thing that I have now watched. Um, I, I suppose you're expecting a plot recap, but it's not really that sort of film. It, in a lot of ways, feels more like you're sitting in on a meandering psychoanalytical session for Roger Waters, whose traumas, attitudes and fears formed the basis of the album, and now this, I suppose, adaptation of the album. Uh, There's three main threads, the modern-day isolation of a rock star from society and humanity, women in particular, inhabited here by a typically dishevelled Bob Geldof as Pink. Uh, There's also a look at the early childhood that got him there, including the trauma of his father being killed during the Second World War, and critiques of society and the education system. And then a weird fantasy sequence where Pink reimagines himself as a fascist dictator in front of rabid crowds, which is hard to read as much other than egotism run amok. Your music is not that compelling, Waters. Uh, I suppose the question that kept me engaged throughout the wall is simply this, who is this for? (laughs) It's not, after all, something that really passes muster as a film in the dramatic sense. There's little through line between the themes that are thrown out and leaning on the album tracks to provide all the context to the visuals may perhaps have been intended as a more poetic way of storytelling, but it's just ended up not telling much of a story. So perhaps it's best left for the Pink Floyd fans, and as a largely Pink Floyd indifferent, this ain't really for me. Even so, I can't imagine it's something that fans would choose to watch over listening to the album, except maybe once as an idle curiosity. Now, to be scrupulously fair, while overall I'm not recommending that anyone not already predisposed to liking this sort of thing seek it out, I did not hate my time with The Wall. While it doesn't hang together at all well as a film, a lot of the production design is very good, and as is commonly pointed out, the animated sequences are very well executed. It's just a shame that it is so frequently deployed in ways that are only just barely symbolic to the point that they're almost literal. It's nice to see that it's a script that's fully Garth Marenghi approved. No cowardly subtext here. <laughs> and in a oh, way, it's all surface. It's yes. all surface. Um, and in a way, I appreciate the honesty on display here. Waters is not glamorising or softening his character flaws and weird attitudes, and I suppose recognition is the first step to changing them. What it isn't is a compelling reason for this to exist as an artefact. Um, yes, it is certainly not something I recommend or particularly enjoyed, but as a curiosity piece, I suppose it still holds some small value. Um, but not much. <laughs> First of all, I have never heard of this nostalgia critic you mentioned, so I have no idea who that is. And um, <laughs> please remind me to not look that up. That sounds like it's something I should not do. It'd probably be better if I don't remind you to look it up, because then you won't be reminded. Yes. You see how that goes? Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, that makes some sort of sense. Yes, but I did take my team with this. It was, it was a miserable <laughs> experience. I, I knew nothing about this, but I knew that it existed vaguely. I'd seen some of the animation, like the walking hammers. Yeah. Um, although, to be honest, I was kind of wondering how hammers were fascist. They're just a tool they're usually used for building things, not breaking things. So you kind of misunderstood the basic concept of hammers, Waters. Well done. <laughs> if it, if it reminded me of, um, you know, the whole idea of like the domino theory. Like, it's, it's a, th- a theory named after not the principal use of dominoes. 
<laughs> I always find that very strange. Um, but yeah, hammers build things. You wouldn't use a hammer like that for breaking. No, your symbolism actually doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but the big surprise to me was that Bob Geldof's in it. This I did not know. I was like, yeah. Bob Geldof? Okay. I'm like, I wonder how he's going to act. It's like, oh, it doesn't speak. Right there, yes. I say they dodged that particular bullet for the most part. <laughs> and Bob Geldof is Hitler now. Okay. What? Um, some of it left me slightly confused and slightly concerned about it. I'm not quite sure what they're saying here. And again, it maybe comes back to what you're saying, Scott, but who's the audience for this? Hmm. But when they're like they're showing him becoming, and he's saying that it's like just um, it, it's maybe I, I shouldn't dig into it at all because so much of the rest of it is just so much surface. Yeah. But like, what does him becoming a fascist mean? But then, when the rest of it, it was like you've got the animation of female genitals and stuff, and are basically being dominated by female genitals. Like, so I'm guessing Roger Waters is an arsehole then. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're an idiot. Go away. Um, <laughs> But then when they're they're playing songs, um, and I know it's a, um, well, I know now that it's a, and I'm going to come back to that point, I know now it's a Pink Floyd song, but when it's got, they're playing songs, lines like, I need you to beat to a pulp on a Saturday night, but when you've got the main character in your film saying those things, like, is that for, or, like, is that saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? Because honestly, I'm not sure. (laughs) Although that, like, that's, um, Roger Waters' point of view, or it's meant to say that actually this person's bad, but this person's also meant to sort of be you and sort of be Sid Barrett. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but the biggest problem is this is a musical film. Uh, going into this film, I knew one Pink Floyd song. Yeah. I've come out of this film and I know one Pink Floyd song. Yeah. Well, okay, definitely like a one and a half because I was always assumed that another Brick in the Wall Part 1 must have been a thing. I've now heard that in this film and I'm aware that it's very slightly different. Yes. <laughs> and I couldn't name another song in this. Every song in this just completely bounced off of me. Like, I have never um, knowingly heard Pink Floyd before apart from another Brick in the Wall Part 2. I will never knowingly listen to Pink Floyd again. Pink Floyd are garbage. <laughs> now, I know really what you should say is Pink Floyd are not for me. I do not prefer them. No, Pink Floyd are garbage. <laughs> all of their music, all of it, in a sweeping statement, is rubbish. No, it's, I mean, it's a musical film in which I did not like any of the music. That's yes, that's an issue. Yes, never going um, to be a winner. Yes. No, and then the rest of it was like, okay, that this is barely symbolism. This is just like basically saying things like out loud, as you say. There's no subtext for most of it. Mm. You could read subtext in some of it, but you'd probably win a hiding to nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, and when is this supposed to be taking place? Because it's the, the time scales don't make any sense because it's some of those futuristic stuff that doesn't. But also, I'm definitely thinking too much about this. Yes. Uh, it doesn't deserve it. <laughs> uh, and like, the Pink's father died in World War One and Two. Very mixed images. Like, but I see something like that. Like, are they trying to make a point about war not changing, or are they just rubbish at recreating war because they don't really know what they're doing? And I'm going for the second one. <laughs> the film supports the first idea, and then <laughs> my thoughts on this were just: I got so bored with the film so quickly, and I'm just getting offended by the fact that the kind of I guess 
seven or eight year old pink can't bread into jam. <laughs> uh, uh, because like this kid gets a slice of bread and puts a spot of jam right in the middle of it and like no you can't bread and jam you're failed as a human being what are you doing child <laughs> <laughs> but he was never taught by his daddy so it's uh, hard for him it's hard for his life yeah yeah it's just garbage the only other thing that really stood out to me in this is bob hoskins Eats yeah. a pineapple in this film in a way I've never seen anybody eat a pineapple. <laughs> that nobody in history has ever eaten a pineapple in such a manner. Um, well, well, you didn't get pineapples down the East End when he was growing up. <laughs> His daddy wasn't around to teach him how he did it. <laughs> it did make me think of... Um, what Studio Ghibli film is it? It's only yesterday. Where they get the pineapple and they don't know how to... Yeah. They cut it and yeah. like, it's, it's, it's unripe when they... It kind of went like that. It's like... I, Bob Hoskins' character has never, or maybe real Bob Hoskins, has never seen a pineapple before <laughs> and just takes a half pineapple and starts trying to eat into the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, you, you might try to think that's symbolism. I think it's either the, either Bob Hoskins is an idiot or they told him to go slightly mental in that scene. <laughs> Look, it was Bob Hoskins' commitment to the method. He, he inhabited the character of his manager and he thought, how would this manager eat this? And that's how he did it. <laughs> It's Bob Hoskins going mental in a pineapple. <laughs> it's worthy of price, I. Yes. Yeah, I just... I get the the biggest one. I don't like the music. It does nothing for me. It's bounced off by the rest of it. It's, like, it's just so dreary. Uh, yeah. I, guess, I don't know whether this is meant to be critical of this character or meant to just be explaining what it's like, but in either way, he's not a pleasant character. And they'll do like, ridiculous misogyny and stuff, and it's like, I've got no time for that. Mm-hmm. It's like um, either this character is a prat, and I'm not sure why you're making a film of it, or Roger Waters is a prat, and I don't <laughs> want to watch a film about this sort of analogue of Roger Waters and or Sid Barrett. So, yeah. The only other point of interest was that didn't the guy playing Pink's father look an awful lot like Kevin Eldon? Hmm. Yeah, a bit, yes. <laughs> yeah, garbage. Hated it. <laughs> It's a no for him and a no for me. So we then go from pink to purple with purple rain. Drew. Oh, wow. But that one actually works. <laughs> Let's mark that on our diary. A linking device that wasn't incredibly tortured. <laughs> Disappointing, really. Flip myself down. <laughs> I mean, it's not a pull of surprise writing right here, anything, but you know, for us. <laughs> Minneapolis, 1984. A talented young musician, The Kid, Prince, is struggling with artistic stagnation a stressful and abusive home life, and the possible loss of his regular slot at the legendary First Avenue Club. This last is exacerbated by Morris Day, Morris Day, <laughs> disliking the kid for plot reasons, and pushing the manager of the club to dump the kid and his band, The Revolution, The Revolution, <laughs> in favour of the new girl group he's putting together. There is also a new girl in town, Apollonia, Apollonia Cotero, really, um, just get write some names why are you doing this Prince (laughs) who instantly falls in love with the kid for plot reasons even going so far as to pawn her only valuable in order to buy an ungrateful the kid a shiny new guitar within days or perhaps even hours of knowing him also for plot reasons after some travails some self-inflicted the kid alienates the revolution by being an arsehole and alienates Apollonia by being an arsehole and some external Morris Day, incidentally also an arsehole, <laughs> and his dad, far beyond arsehole, 
as well as an outright tragedy. The kid and the revolution take to the stage for their last chance, wowing the crowd with a song based on music written by two members of the revolution that the egotistical The Kid had been ignoring for the whole film. Because arsehole. <laughs> that song is Purple Rain, and it is a good song. And lo, the crowd went wild. Purple Rain was created to help to showcase Prince's talents, or at least to polish his ego and let him be an actor, as he allegedly refused to sign a new record contract unless he got to be in a movie. Now, I know what you're thinking. Prince having some sort of contractual dispute with a record label? (laughs) Preposterous! But that's the story out there, hard to swallow as it may be. (laughs) Fortunately though, a vanity project as it may be, Purple Rain is certainly one of the better ones. And Prince is pretty watchable as, well, Prince. Such things cannot always be taken for granted. Unfortunately, as the kid is such an... Well, I'm repeating myself here, but such an arsehole. And so much else of the film seems to have a lot in common with Prince's life. The film was perhaps too successful in making me think that Prince was an arsehole. (laughs) However, Prince was also a great musician and performer and had bags of charisma and that, though it shouldn't, goes a long way to ameliorating the whole arsehole thing. And the music's good, which is just as well as the plot isn't. (laughs) Not least because character motivation is lacking, particularly Apollonius, especially when the whole film seems to take place over two or three days. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed Purple Rain, but it's far from a masterpiece, though if you're susceptible to Prince's smouldering stares... Alas, I am not. You may like it considerably more than I. You're certainly in for a lot of them. (laughs) Still though, solid entertaining, good music. Although I will say, super desirable guitar as plot point was done far better in Wayne's World. It will be mine. (laughs) Oh yes, it will be mine. Prince, a man so cool he can almost pull off that moustache, but not quite. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I... I, d- I didn't mind Purple Rain, but I will never watch this again or probably even think of it again. It is a film where the f- actual film parts of it I could quite easily have slept through. Um, yeah. None of them are any good, and most of it's uh, pretty perfunctory. It's saving grace is, of course, it's got a Prince soundtrack to back it up. Um, that goes a long way, yes, because Prince is very good. So, yeah, it <laughs> worked as well. I, it's surprising, I think, just how many... Obviously, Prince was very highly put out by the contractual agreements he's agreed to at various points in his career. Obviously, that's why he gets a you know, slave was it a slave tattoo or something, wasn't it? He, certainly, his, his album, last albums were called Emancipation, all that kind of thing. He felt very put his, upon. Now, his I'm, long squiggle period. Yes. Yeah, so the amount of leeway this man was given in his contracts is frankly remarkable. I mean, not just this film. It's like when he decided he, there was like bits in his contract where when he doesn't want to um, do the kind of style of music that he was signed for, but he was contractually allowed to create a new band to fulfil that kind of part of his contract to do that music. That's where the time came from. It's like, really? That's part of a contract you can have? <laughs> Good grief. So very strange all round. Um, on his behaviour, but the actual film itself, hmm. 
I would not recommend it as a film. I would recommend instead that it just well, listen to the various Prince albums that I've got this soundtrack comes from. It's a much more pleasurable experience, I would think. Um, but yeah, that said, I didn't hate my time with Purple Rain, uh, but I'll never watch it again. It's, it's all, I suppose it's all right for what it is, but what it is isn't much. So Yeah, that, that's how you sell it. I did enjoyed it, but I'm never going to watch it again. And I think it's not a film that I get made now. Mm, because yeah. YouTube's a thing, um, because there's so much easy access to like the music and stuff. I guess by that time MTV was a thing, but yeah. like it's just like on-demand access to music and stuff like you just watch that. You wouldn't bother with the film because it's barely a film. Yeah, and yeah, as said that Prince isn't actually particularly likable in it. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, but again, the performances make up for it. But. I mean, if Prince is an interesting character, I'd quite like to see something like more more about him, but not by him, because you know, I don't think I could trust him as a narrator of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I kind of, I mean, it's clearly a choice, but a little bit of inventiveness in terms of the character names might have been nice. I mean, given that Vanity was supposed to have been in it, um, yeah. and she'd left the production and left Vanity 6 by that point. Yeah. So the band they created for this, they brought Apollonia in and called it Apollonia 6. Yeah. Up all night, Scott. Yes. Um, just sneak that one under the deadline for shooting, I'm sure. <laughs> Prince is basically the only person in the film not called their name. Yeah. It's very strange. And neither was he later on as well, so that <laughs> makes sense. Half cap and squiggle. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I don't even know if you could recommend that though, because I'm not sure people are going to get an awful lot out of it. No, there's a number of these films that we're talking about where if you're a fan of the work of the, the artist, then you'll get some joy of it out of it. But then you've probably already seen it if that's the case. So probably, yeah. it's probably not a recommendation that's, that's really worth making. Um, but certainly, if you're it's like a more casual, I guess I am kind of a casual Prince fan, and I'm. Even so, I didn't get a lot out of well, certainly yeah. the film elements of it, and certainly nothing yeah. I would recommend over just listening to the guy's work again. Yeah, the musical segments are definitely good on it, and Purple Rain is an all-time classic. Yeah, uh, so you can't really go wrong with that. But um, again, I I have the CD that it's on, so you know, yes. <laughs> or Vanity Projects are, are are very much the, at the heart of this episode, I think, uh, in some in one way or another, and. If you think Prince was a big 1980s star getting a vanity project, how about, like, biggest star... Well, it's got to be the biggest star of the 80s. The most oh, yeah. well-known person in the world at the time. One of the most well-known people in the world ever. Decides to make a film. Well, kind I of. say make a film. <laughs> it's not this. really the best <laughs> word, but I'm, I'm struggling to find another. Um, yes. So... Yeah, uh, Moonwalker Scott, um, where, where Michael Jackson's a car. Yes, I believe Moonwalker was one of the VHS tapes that came with my parents' first VHS machine uh, <laughs> after fleeing the superior Betamax format. So I've seen this a few more times than maybe expected, and I might be expected to say that, hey, this is weirder than I remembered, but no, no, it's pretty much exactly as weird as I remember, and that's probably fitting given that it is from the mind of Michael Jackson, whom science has determined to be weird. At best. I mean, it starts off much as you might expect with a film of a live performance, and then a, a very well done call ice style retrospective of his career with the Jackson 5, and an almost impossibly cute recasting of the bad video with kids, and later on, the still pretty cool call ice style video for Leave Me Alone. Uh, but there's a taste of the strangeness to be fully embraced later between these last two, with the extended Speed Demon section featuring an altogether too long chase sequence around the studio back lot with a cast of claymation grotesqueries, and as much as I'm a sucker for the technique, this is perhaps a bridge too far. 
still at this point, if it's gone off the rails slightly, there's still at least the concept of rails present in the first place, (laughs) which rapidly dissipates in the, what, hour-long final section where Jackson and his best friends, a group of little children, including young Sean Lennon, who go off into the woods with hindsight, maximally um, (laughs) cringe-inducing, only to stumble across... Joe Pesci's underground criminal fascist drug-dealing arachnophile who plans to, I suppose, control the world by having them all become addicted to drugs, which then happens instantaneously for given values of world where world equals deserted studio backlot, but it's okay because Jackson can transform into a car and then a robot and then fly away into space only to immediately return to Earth and at some point smooth criminal and come together get some. <laughs> all of which prompts the question, what? <laughs> and, and it does not seem interesting in providing any answer to us it's all <laughs> it's, it's all very strange and in a way critic proof because it doesn't seem to be intended to make any sense or have any meaning beyond some at the time mildly flashy effects work and indulging Michael Jackson's whims which I suppose it does but that's no help to us poor schlubs in the audience that just want to see the smooth criminal video which as you'll remember is a 30s speakeasy empired piece that in no way fits in with this weird sci-fi dystopia setting of the surrounding framework what a strange and sadly quite boring <laughs> section Right, so where would that leave Moonwalker under ordinary circumstances? Um, Probably more or less where it is now. Much like The Wall, even for the most ardent fan, there's not much in the way of compelling reasons to watch this more than once as an idle curiosity, uh, rather than playing an album. And after his trials for sexual abuse, where our legal department insists that I point out he was acquitted, uh, well, after that, hmm, his character's in a very different place. And well, look, I don't hate this film, but there's not a huge number of reasons to dig up this piece of the past. Let it go. Let it go. The upside of this for me compared to The Wall is that I really, 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 really like Michael Jackson's music and always have. Yes, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> yes. yes. Monsters, Scott. Yes, monsters. Uh, and, I mean, I have such fun memories of this in a way in that the first, there may have been others in like the wee like kids' tapes and stuff, but the first album I remember being mine that I got to choose, my parents said, like, what do you want to buy? Yeah. Was Michael Jackson's bad. Yeah. And I'm sure I wore out that cassette. Yes. <laughs> I, I knew that film back at the front and I love Speed Demon. And I, I like my first real experience of stereo separation. Yeah. When the bike passes from one ear to the other. And I thought that was amazing. <laughs> um, and start to like, you know, listen critically to music. Yeah. And also, the first, again, and I'm sure there were things in the house and maybe things that were from me and my sister. There was lots, there was family videos. So, mm-hmm. um, and when a few were the same, I think in the 1980s, like, having videos at home wasn't that common. You'd have a few. No, you would, you would have things you taped off the telly, but you wouldn't have yeah, things that's a bunch of pre- Yeah, a bunch of blank tapes that you had to take things off of the television. But actually, pre-recorded cassettes, pretty rare back yeah. then. Um, yeah. And one of, uh, one of the very first films I got on VHS, and I got it for Christmas, was Moonwalker. Hmm. So I, like you, have seen it a lot, yeah. like, way more than you might expect. Although, thinking about this, um, I realised that I'm sure it was the same Christmas time. And how this happened, I don't know, because my parents were reasonably conservative about watching me, letting me watch more old orientated stuff. Yeah, But that same Christmas, the other video cassette I remember getting was Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> It's very different work. <laughs> yes. Uh, the 18 Beverly Hills Cop that I got the same Christmas as Moonwalker for some reason. And I honestly don't know how that slipped through, but 
I would like you to take a guess, Scott, at which one of those two films I watched the most and which one I have the fondest memories of. <laughs> because I knew back, if I was called Back to Front. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I watched Moonwalker once, I think, maybe yeah. well, more than once, a few times, but again, that's just more just, I didn't have much, much other choice at the yeah. time. Uh, <laughs> and it's entirely as weird as it was then, although I had kind of forgotten Michael Jackson turns into a car. Yes. <laughs> And a spaceship, and a, I think I remembered the robot. Yeah. But, you know, I definitely didn't remember Joe Pesci. It's a long time since I've seen this. Uh, <laughs> and his glorious high heel boots. <laughs> and his ponytail. Yeah. <laughs> and high waisted trousers as well. Oh. <laughs> kind of, he's dressed like Steve Jobs, but shrunk. <laughs> yes. With a black turtleneck. Um, but. I, again, I don't know who this film's for. I guess Michael Jackson fans, you get an awful lot more of it than uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, I think. Yeah. Um, and that opening section is so well done. It's a lot of good music together. Really good quality animation, even if the, although it's a bit better, but the little robot reminded me of Rotor. Mm. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's really good. And it's just, but it's it kind of, for like, about two thirds of it basically feels like a concert video or a collection of music videos. Yeah, maybe it should just have been that. Yes, definitely should have been. Yeah, because the bit where there's no music is such a drag. Yeah. It seems to go on forever, and it's there's probably a twenty minute section from the end of Smooth Criminal to the point where Michael Jackson dies in a definitely not trying to put him as Jesus type of way, mm. and he comes back alive after he's left to go to space uh, <laughs> to do the concert at the end. That 20 minutes feels like an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's so long. It drags so much. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but the, the structure of it's so weird because it, it opens up with the concert footage and then it goes on for quite a bit. And I, even, I, I made a note Um The actual like film bit of the film doesn't begin until 21 minutes and 43 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's all just music video up till then. Yeah. Uh, well, more or less music video, right? It then stops again at 33 minutes, 19 seconds. So you get um, 12 minutes of film in there. And and that's basically just him wandering in the back lot of a film before Speed Demon starts. Yeah. Uh, and I love Speed Demon, but yeah, that section goes on too long. And there's also part and, of a different film than the one that goes on to be. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, 37 minutes and it starts again. We get the second beginning of the film. Um, <laughs> it's... It's so weird, and there are so many entertainments. Like the bit when when it comes back to the concert at the end, and Michael Jackson starts singing a cover of "Come Together" by the Beatles. Yeah. Like this is excellent. Yes, I like the song. I like the Beatles. Like Michael Jackson. I know Michael Jackson was a big fan of the Beatles. He owned the Beatles uh, music rights for a long, long time. Yeah, it was one of his biggest assets. You know, at the end when he'd lost all his money, it was one of the last things to go because he suddenly didn't want to let go of them, even though there was mm-hmm. a lot of money. Because he cared about them this is fun and then there's all this weird stuff going on in between like this is really boring yes. why is this here who is this for <laughs> oh presumably for michael jackson but yeah. um it's the weirdest video but a weirdest film again michael jackson's a car <laughs> for some reason yes why and they seem to live in this dark um soundstage pretending to be a European street because the cobbles definitely read to me as European. I don't know if you get many of them in the United States, maybe New York City. I'm not sure. Yeah, but that happens to be next to the middle of a really kind of nice mountain area, which is where <laughs> they go with the dog. What is this film's geography? 
nothing in this film makes sense. Nothing's connected. It's just here's some stuff. Here's some other stuff. Yeah. Michael Jackson's a car now. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's definitely um, a section that kind of got away from itself at some points. Yeah, it's it, it's really weird. But I mean, there are some really nice bits. I mean, I like the speed down, but it's, it's the length of the speed down, but it's too long. So yeah, the, absolutely. The, the claymation is quite good. And it's actually it's um, composited into the live action shots, yeah, live action well, plays, yeah. about as well as you could do that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's high quality stuff. I mean, it's not a surprise. Michael Jackson was the most bankable star in the. Um, the world at the time is that he's got to be pretty much the most famous person on the planet yeah. when this was made. So you know the the fact that it's well made is not surprising. Well, only a twenty two million dollar budget. I'm honestly kind of surprised by yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you could put a whole chunk of money just into that opening thirty minutes. Yes, but and then there's so many nice such like uh, the the recasting of Bad as the Children, which had stuck in my head so long that I'd kind of forgotten that that wasn't actually the Bad video. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I knew Wesley Snipes is in the Bad video, but I kind of thought that they were both in the official video. But I realized no, the the kids version is just Moonwalker. Yes. And the kid playing the young Michael Jackson looks so like Ice Cube. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not even a wee bit. Like I say, I, I almost looked up an INDB then realised, well, no, it can't be because the, the years are wrong because NWA was starting round about then anyway. So yes. Ice Cube's like 19 or so. When I was, it's definitely, boy, did he look like Ice Cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are nice touches in there and some interesting things. And, and Smooth Criminal's always great. But, but, but Michael Jackson's a car now. Why? Why is Michael Jackson a car now? <laughs> it's a weird, weird artifact of of well, Michael Jackson. So I mean, it's fitting in that regard. Yes. Um, and I mean, I'm not even sure if it it qualifies as a vanity project in the way that so many things do because it's not. I mean, half of it's stuff that existed anyway. Yeah. And it's like put it together. And like, how much input did Michael Jackson actually have on this? Uh, I don't know. I. I it's such a weird thing. I can't really put key and thoughts together because no key and thoughts was anywhere near this film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wonder if this was made, you know, a few years later. Would it have just been a compilation of the music videos which were becoming nascent at the time? Uh, probably would have been better for it because um, that's that's almost what this is. Apart from where it just kind of gets away with itself, particularly on that smooth criminal bit, the, as we've been speaking about the, the weird car section, um, which just kind of gets away from itself and just is altogether too long for what it is and is largely nonsensical so yeah hard to recommend on that basis uh, but at least yeah. we got a couple of decent games out of it the arcade version is quite good it even does credits weird because you get some sort of credits and then Lady Smith Blackman Basil appear in the club that Smooth Criminal was set in yes <laughs> um, and then you get some more credits which seem at least have to be more or less the same credits as before or <laughs> they're more credits for the same thing we've already had some of the credits for because it's kind of broken down into the sections rather than <laughs> as a film as a whole yeah it's it's a weird weird film yes and I kind of I appreciate its weirdness also no <laughs> <laughs> just no <laughs> Um, I don't regret having watched it again, but I'm never going to watch this anymore. Um, yeah, maybe the like the, the actually no, I, I'd watch the opening montage again because yeah. it's like kind of a best of Michael Jackson. Yeah, um, yeah. Although I would suggest that they didn't really interpret Ben particularly well. <laughs> 
No, because Ben, friendship with this kid and his pet rat, but but then you just showed millions of rats in a sewer and, yes. and we'll have a newspaper headline that said, rats, rats, rats. I think you've kind of misunderstood that, whoever came up with that section. See, see, your expectations were subverted. Yeah. <laughs> it's about family. <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's, it's so strange, but... I'm, I don't think I could recommend that, even out of curiosity, just because that section with Joe Pesci at the end, with the the robot and things, it drags so much. It feels like the whole rest of the length of the film added um, just to that section. It's so bad. Uh, And very, very 80s. Very 80s, but kind of low-budget 80s. And it it looks so ugly as well. It's horrible lighting. It's quite clearly in a fairly cheap set. It's it's a strange mixture. There's so much care going into the, the montage at the beginning. Yeah. Maybe that's where all the budget went, and they just didn't have any money left to get anything more convincing than just whatever backlot happened to be there at the time. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we're going to jump forward quite a bit then. Uh, 13 years, or 12, 13 years, to a film that, honestly, Scott, I'm not quite sure how it fitted into this film, but some way there was some sort of author insertion or like musician insertion into the concept of the film. So I'm hoping you can explain to me how 1960s East End gangsters has anything to do with All Saints. Well, Honest we're talking about, and Honest was largely part of this episode as a representative sample of the Musician's Vanity Project, as perhaps now the your example, and it's a twofer because it's directed and part written by the Eurythmics dude, Dave Stewart, and stars three quarters of the turn of the millennium space school alternatives, all saints, namely Melanie Blatt, Nicole Appleton, and Natalie Appleton, with Chasney Lewis wisely passing on this opportunity. Uh, perhaps she's the only one that read the script before deciding. Um, the film, it says here, and despite all evidence to the contrary, is a black comedy set in the underworld of the 60s London. And it comes across like someone threw a rejected Guy Ritchie script and an unironic version of Austin Powers into a blender, then carefully removed all charm, drama, humour and charisma, leaving this long-forgotten husk that we have wisely chosen to resurrect. Um, so as <laughs> such, I shall not spend too much time on it. Uh, the Appletons and Blatt play the thieving Chase sisters, robbing high-value targets while disguised as men, and further disguised by wearing a mask, belt and braces, I assume. Uh, not that it helps when the local kingpin, Colin Redgrave's Ducky Ord, figures out that they are behind the crimes, including one at one of Ord's own gaffes. So he demands monetary compensation or their lives. So the sisters hatch a plan to steal the stash of Toff magazine editor and drug dealer Jonathan Cakes, Andrew Price Stevens. This is complicated somewhat by one of the sisters, and I'm not ashamed to say I can't remember which of them, uh, developing a relationship with one of the magazine's writers, Peter Fasanelli's Daniel Wheaton, on a gap year from American Law School. Comic caper hijinks fail to ensue. Um, this brief summation saves you from a fair amount of what's best characterised as filler, uh, particularly the help we're accidentally on acid sequence that lasts for approximately 15 years, and also from a raft of performances that I suppose are technically acting in the strict meaning of the sense, but only very barely. Uh, its primary crime is, of course, that it's a comedy that it's not funny in the slightest, uh, despite the main writers of the film having a long and successful track record. It's fair to say, I think that this was not their finest hour and a half, uh, even before it was mangled by some absolutely honking delivery from her leads. Uh, the characterisation also falls completely flat, so the dramatic elements follow the comedic out of the window, leaving this film very little to offer, unless, that is, you want to watch a film that's so male-gazy that it's more of a male leer. Now, this was decried as the worst British film ever made on release. 
sadly, partly why I wanted to see it. And um, I think there was more than an element of tabloid sensationalism and their mm-hmm. typical desire to tear down successful people, women particularly, at the slightest excuse. Uh, much the same happened a few years later with Sex Lives of the Potato Men. And to be clear, both are execrable films that are not worth your time or consideration, but worst ever, only if you've seen a very limited selection of films. It is really bad, though. <laughs> Sex Lives of the Potato Men, Scott. I had entirely forgotten that existed, so... Special anti thanks for that. <laughs> oh God, I'm not going to, have to stop thinking about that now. I hate you. <laughs> yeah, the sensationalism is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, although weirdly, apparently the Sunday Times gave it four stars and called it a cult classic. But you can't do it for something that's only just been released. Yes. You know, people need to stop using that word. Yes. But, uh, are they taking the piss with that? I think they may have been, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'd I'd forgotten this film existed until you mentioned it, and you mentioned it. Uh, we said we're going to do this. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I I remember that be having such a bad rap. Um, and then I sat down to watch, and I, I will add the caveat that I watched this after having watched The Wall. <laughs> this may have a bearing on what I'm about to say next, but it's like, you know what? It wasn't completely terrible. It was just like conventionally terrible mm. and boring. <laughs> yes. And I mean, the acting's not great in it, but to be honest, I've seen worse. In fact, I've seen considerably worse. <laughs> and I was mostly just kind of regularly bored by it. Yeah. It's not the worst thing. I mean, it's not, in no way is it a good film. But, I mean, it's not even in the, the running for the worst film ever. Not even close. It's a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. It's just kind of crappy uh, and pointless. I, I don't know what it's saying, but I mean... Some of the shots are competent enough. The acting is certainly not the worst I've ever seen. It's just boring. And honestly, I I had such a miserable time with the wall, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I was expecting it to be a real stinker. um, And it's just like, nah, it's just a bit of rubbish. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, I mean, it's full of mistakes, like, you know, and like, I don't know if the writers knew what they were doing at any given time. Because in one part of the film, they're saying that this, the jewels they stole were being claimed on insurance at £10,000. Even in the 1960s, that doesn't seem an awful lot for jewels. Yeah. And that was apparently overvalued. But at the same point, one of the cards was talking about um, a cab ride from one side of London to the other was £2. Mm. That's a lot of jewels then, <laughs> um, to pay for a cab ride. Uh, so yes, it's... Uh, I don't know, it's just a bit rubbish, like the, the main villain kind of managing to find him in the middle of France somehow, you know, for plot convenience reasons, because it's badly written. Yes. <laughs> uh, I could I could certainly have done without the comedy wife beater, because that's funny. Yeah. Because I mean, that's actually kind of like, one of the more genuinely emotional parts of it. There's like almost touching stuff there, but um, Annette Badland's character being beat up by this guy, but he's just, he's... Um, Written and acted like an absolute clown. Yeah, I like that. Just I, I kind of find that irresponsible, actually. But yeah, it's just a bit crap. Yeah, I mean, its primary offence is just being boring and not being funny, uh, yeah, which is a problem for a comedy. It. I mean, it's, it's not a film I can really bring myself to be angry about in a way that an actual bad film would be. Uh, it's just not good. But yeah, there's certainly nothing like worse. British film ever made, that's crazy talk, but it's just it's certainly not good, certainly not recommending it but yeah. So when I went to watch it, I didn't know it was meant to be a comedy, so I didn't have that extra thing because <laughs> comedies that aren't funny make me angry, but I didn't know it was meant to be a comedy so I didn't have that particular problem mm-hmm. just, I mean, obviously you're not going to watch it, but 
I have seen so many worse films. Um, I think it's one of those films that's got kind of fashionable to bag on. Yeah. And it's kind of that stuck around. Like, don't watch it, but like, don't like hope to kind of ironically enjoy it. Man. It's just dull. Yeah. That's his big problem. Although, I could have done without the the main character, the supposed hero, the main male character, the supposed hero, having a confederate flag in his room at Oxford. Yeah, he snuck that one in, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, like, what? It didn't match his accent at all. But, I, what, what was that for? Um, <laughs> yep. When that that doesn't fly, no. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not worth spending a lot more time in it. It's a film we should all just walk away from, walk far away from, maybe walk eight miles away from. Well, we're back to the terrible ones then. Yes. Oh, that, was, that was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> like that of The Kid in Purple Rain, the story of Eminem's Jimmy Smith Jr., known to his friends as B-Rabbit, takes place over a short time. About a week, more or less. Though it's a bit hazy. But unlike Purple Rain, the events make sense over that scale. <laughs> so, hey! Rabbit's in a low place. He's just broken up with his girlfriend, leaving her his car, and moved back in with his mum. Kim Basinger and little sister Lily in a trailer park on the black and read of the way it's portrayed wrong side of 8 Mile, the road that separates urban Detroit from the largely white northern suburbs. He's working a low-paying manual job and feels rather trapped and has pinned his hopes on getting out on cutting a demo and making it big in hip-hop. But when he chokes at a rap battle at a local club, those hopes seem further away than ever and potentially foolish. None of that may matter, however, if his contretemps with the rival hip-hop group Come Gang leads where it might and he ends up dead. Being dead is generally contraindicated for a promising music career. <laughs> Though, to be fair, it didn't seem to impede Tupac much. He definitely released more albums after he died than when he was alive. Yes. 8 Mile was the film I was most looking forward to watching for this episode, partly because I knew that I liked it, but mostly because it was about my favourite genre of music. On re-watching it then, for the first time in many years, I was struck by how small the story is and how little music is actually in it, at least as performance rather than just a film soundtrack. There's some domestic drama, though Rabbit's mother is painted much more flatteringly than Eminem's own mother is in his music. Some fallings out between friends. There's a dame who does him wrong. Yes, Slim Shady is now Sam Spade. <laughs> and genuine threat from other young men too hot-headed and full of testosterone for everyone's good. But it all takes place within a limited world, with limited scope and limited stakes, and well, beyond, you know, dying, it's quite a big stake, but, <laughs> uh, and it's all the more reliable for it. The rap battle rematch, to which the film builds, and with which it, quite satisfactorily, if conventionally ends, is a rewarding moment, and feels earned, believable and appropriate. It also makes up for the surprising paucity of rapping in the rest of the film, which is only sprinkled here and there, it also showcases Eminem's lyrical dexterity, were that ever in doubt. Looking back at the review I wrote of this for the oneliner.com on its release, 18 years ago, <laughs> oh God, oh God, oh God, I'm a Dyson. <laughs> I described it as like Rocky, but with lyrics instead of punches. Easy, flippant, cliched, sure, but also kind of accurate at least in the broad strokes of the structure. I note that I also consider it a five-star film. Today, I'm neither quite so effusive nor quite so brilliant about 8 Miles as I was back then. Apart from anything else, I've seen a lot more films in the nearly two decades since. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. 
but I still find it a very rewarding watch, with a surprisingly engaging and accomplished central turn from first-time actor Mr. Mathers. Playing a version of himself in something that's more an M&M creation myth than a biography, he's helped by strong support from the likes of Mackay Pfeiffer and Omar Benson Miller as his friends, Future and Soul, and from the beginning, this core group of friends feels authentic and likeable, even if Evan Jones's Cheddar Bob feels slightly too broad and goofy. He is, however, called Cheddar Bob, and that counts for a lot. <laughs> I'd also forgotten Anthony Mackie was in this, and it's amusing to see him play a bad guy when he's normally so likeable. And if anything, I find the low-key, minor victory ending more satisfying now than ever before. In the end, 8 Mile is one of those fairly conventional films elevated by skill in front of and behind the camera, and with the added peel of the parallels to its star's life. It also features one of Eminem's best tracks, the multi-award winning Lose Yourself, though I object to some of those awards on the grounds that a song that doesn't appear in a film till the end credits ought not to count as a song from a film. (laughs) And on that strange and individual hill, in which I wouldn't die, but you know, might put up a bit of a half-hearted struggle, <laughs> I will finish. Eight Mile is good. Yes, um, I, I concur. I hadn't watched this, I think, in the intervening 18 years. Uh, I don't believe I've revisited this, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot back in the day, and I enjoy it just as much now, I think. Yeah, for almost all the reasons that you've uh, already elucidated, um, I've like you, I think uh, it's the, the kind of small scale of this that I like. Um, it is the fact that it's not, unlike the lyrics of the track, it is not really his one chance. You know, this is a very small scale rap battle. It is not really putting him on the career to superstardom um, outside of that room. Um, you yeah, wonder how many people his, there. Get him a little respect and get him his confidence back. That's all it's, 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 it's low stakes. Yeah, and, um, and in fact, you could argue the actual victory came before he even got into that room where he started to try and get his life in order and you know, work extra hard at the factory and that kind of stuff and you know, yeah. care for himself. And you know, that's the real victory. The, the victory mm. at the Rat Battle came from that. Um, he, it's, it's not actually the comeback that is the most important in it. Um, just recovering that work ethic and you know, trying to make it by yourself rather than trying to rely on unhelpful other people who'll maybe help you somehow and most likely screw you over as happens in the film and yeah it it, it all works very well as a kind of just small scale not, morality tale is not quite the right term for it but yeah this is a kind of little fable of uh, success and hard work it works really well and, and uh, going another dog and yeah Eminem's surprisingly sympathetic as, as the lead you might not have expected him to be able to pull off this kind of acting performance even though it is closely modelled on his life it's one thing to live your life and another thing to kind of act it out in front of a camera but mm-hmm. he does very well here and yeah overall it just condenses into a very enjoyable film all around yeah heartily recommend it right uh, that will bring us to the end of this exciting episode if you'd like to get in touch with us for uh, any of the reasons brought up here today or indeed anything else then get in touch with us uh, through email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on twitter at fudsonfilm and well until next time you should take care of yourself and each other I'll say goodbye and I'm relatively certain Drew will do so too be excellent to each other goodbye goodbye